Hey everyone, uh, before we get into the episode of That's What G Said Podcast, if you could do me a big, big favor, head on over to iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, and just hit the subscribe button, especially YouTube, uh, trying to build those YouTube numbers up, so hit that subscribe button. If you can go leave us a nice five-star rating and review on iTunes, that would be great. It's nice that we're a small business, which means we don't really have to kiss anybody's butt and we can talk about whatever we want. But on the uh, flip side, we need your help promoting the show, pushing the show. So uh, if you're a fan of That's What G Said, make sure to tag some of your friends, let them know about the show, and uh, anyone that's a sports fan or pop culture, make sure to give a give them the heads up about That's What G Said. We're going to be talking about the Astros cheating scandal, a little bit more on that. NFL Game Previews Conference Championship Weekend, and then we're going to go through the Fairgrounds Saturday card. It is the LeCompte, and we will go through every horse in the Silver Bullet Day and in the LeCompte, as well as a bunch of undercard play. So enjoy this episode of That's What G Said Podcast that is brought to you by CindyCarafa.com and SarahCandles.com. You're going to hear more about them later on in the episode. January 17th, 2020, another day in more cheating in baseball. The Astros are cheating even more than we thought. Hey, everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said podcast. What a crazy day in baseball, right? So I'm recording this on Friday night. Thursday was probably, as far as like baseball news coming out, one of the craziest days on social media that I can ever remember. Let's go through kind of what has happened over the last few days. So it turns out that the Astros did continue cheating throughout 2017, the playoffs as well, and into the 2018 regular season using whistling, devices, banging on trash cans, all sorts of stuff. And teams were figuring out what they were doing, so that's why it slowed down into 2018. It's pretty crazy. This is from Rob Arthur. The glimpse at the individual results give a better idea of which players might have benefited from Stein's sign stealing and which seems to have been enabled to utilize it to the fullest. I mean, you see some of the splits, like with Altuve. You see some of the splits with uh, McCann. I mean, it's it's pretty absurd. So I'm just going to read through a bunch of uh, social media stuff over the last couple of days because it has been i mean trevor bauer came out he's he's known about this cheating for a long time uh he was talking about this and and basically saying it was going on and people laughed the real big story that came out yesterday was jessica mendoza who works for espn she does sunday night baseball and she's also a consultant for the mets she came out and just had a horrendous statement talking about how she didn't like how mike fires came out and and told the public about everything that happened in the the clubhouse that he was in. She uh, said that she thought Fires should have gone to executives first, try to talk to the MLB and talk to the teams before going public. Well, first of all, he did. So as someone who's supposed to be really researched and really informed, how did she not know that Fires 
and multiple teams have already warned the MLB about the Astros. They already did this, and, and, and baseball didn't care. The MLB only cared when Fires took this information to the Athletic, and then it was made public. So, just a horrible take from Jessica Mendoza. And it, it I always didn't like the fact that she's calling games on Sunday Night Baseball and she works for the Mets. To me, that just seems like a real conflict of interest. Um, and, and then she had to come out with an apology statement. I'm sure the Mets or someone else made her give that statement. I'm a Dodger fan, right? So it's it's been frustrating to see and and kind of look back on all the things that happen. But it's really funny now, now that we know that the Astros did in fact cheat, to look back on the Astros and how they acted. I mean, first of all, how about Justin Verlander? In 2017, even before he came to Houston, he wanted to get uh, cracked down on sign stealing, which is really funny now to look back on. This was when he was with Detroit before he came over to Houston, and then now we know he he went to the team who was the all-time sign-stealing team. We and and I'm not going to talk about the Red Sox and and what happened in 2018 yet. We know that Alex Cora has stepped down as a coach, so so far three managers now. Carlos Beltran, the manager of the Mets, didn't manage one game. He's out. Cora's out. And Hinch is out. So 10% of baseball managers in the last week are gone. Here are the the splits for the Astros. I probably mentioned this on our last podcast, but these are so overwhelming that I have to mention it again. 2017 Astros postseason splits. At home, they were 8-1. On the road, 3-6. At home, they had scored 5.7 runs per game. On the road, they scored 3. At home, they had a 273 batting average. On the road, 208. At home, 18 home runs. On the road, 9. At home, on base percentage of 343. On the road, on base percentage of 284. And a slugging percentage at home of 519. And a slugging percentage on the road of 347. Remember watching all those Astros games and these playoff runs and thinking sometimes, man, doesn't it seem like they know what pitches are coming? Yuli Gurriel up there, or Springer, or Altuve just teeing off on someone? Well, they did, folks. They did know what pitches were coming. And uh, this was from Ryan Rosillo. So now replay has given us more opportunities to cheat in baseball. A block shot is off the offensive player now, and pass interference is never overturned because of spite. Cool. (laughs) The, The video that came out on Thursday, there were videos and pictures, a video of of Jose Altuve, when he, in 2019, hit a game-winning walk-off home run off of Chapman, and as he is rounding third, as the whole team is excited, jumping up and down, celebrating, you know, you just hit a game-winning home run, right? If you're Altuve, you gotta be a big smile, you gotta be ready to celebrate. No, you know what he's saying as he rounds third and he's looking at his teammate? Don't take off my shirt. He was wearing a wire underneath, a buzzer. Because you can see immediately, he he goes right to the dugout. He's the only person. He just hit the home run, touches home bait, runs right in the dugout, and puts a t-shirt on over while everyone out there is celebrating. We see other interviews of different players um, with well, taped wires to their chest. There's one with Redick. And the, the Astros are responding that it was, uh, it was confetti. 
You know, he, he literally has a wire taped to his chest. Ken Rosenthal, who was reporting in the 2019 ALCS, the night that Altuve hit that home run, when Altuve was being interviewed in the post game, Ken Rosenthal asked him why. Why did he tell his teammates not to take off his shirt when he was running home, when he was rounding uh, third base? And Altuve, which, keep in mind, when you're lying, you always repeat the question that somebody asked you, right? Gives you a few extra seconds to think more of a lie. So, like, if somebody, hey, Gino, how old am I? Hmm. Or, Gina, Gina, how old are you? And so I would say, how old am I? I am 21. You know, that's, you know, someone's lying when they, Repeat the question you ask them Give them a few seconds to formulate a thought And then spit out some bullshit Right? Plain and simple They're going to give you some BS after that So what Altuve then said was Oh, ha, 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 I'm, I'm shy Ha, 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 My wife did not like it when my shirt was off Well, if you look up Jose Altuve You can find millions of pictures with his shirt off He has never, ever, one time Been considered or talked about as someone who is shy. This story just keeps getting bigger and bigger by the minute. Things are trickling out. So here was the the Jessica Mendoza apology. Thought it was important to clarify my earlier statements about the sign-stealing situation in MLB. Most importantly, I feel strongly the game of baseball will benefit greatly because this sign-stealing matter was uncovered. Cheating the game is something that needs to be addressed, and I'm happy to see that the league is taking appropriate action. The point I should have been uh, much more clear on was this. I believe it's critical that this news was made public. I disagree with the manner in which it was done. I credit Mike Fires for stepping forward, yet I feel that going directly through your team and or MLB first could have been a better way to surface the information. He did! Multiple teams and players did, and MLB didn't care. So her entire statement and her entire opinion was just based on wrong information, which is is mind-boggling to me. Then there was... A Twitter account that was supposedly Beltran's niece Who started tweeting about the buzzers He mentioned Altuve had a buzzer Bregman wore devices that buzzed on their Inside right shoulder And when you look at the Video and you look at the footage it all seems To add up now keep in mind these are all things Trickling in and out so this this information is Changing like by the second by the minute More and more and more So then the Mets Get rid of Beltran Funny tweet from Eric Stevens says uh, The only way the Astros All-Stars would be booed any louder at Dodger Stadium in July Is if they were Clippers Because the All-Star game is at Dodger Stadium this year And if you don't know The Clippers get booed like crazy at Dodger games Because LA is a Laker town And it's funny because it's it's like the Clippers are not LA, right? Chris Paul used to get booed like crazy Kawhi and Paul George get booed like crazy at Dodger games this was from Brody Brazil. The only acceptable take on Mike Fires goes like this. Thank you for putting your own name on the line to help baseball eliminate one of its most embarrassing scandals in history. End of story. Hey, I got to be honest. I've done something like this similar too, right? Like you 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 work somewhere or you work at a place and you know there's there's like some things going on that you don't agree with or that you don't necessarily like. So then what do you what do you do? Do you go publicly about it? Do you go tell the people that are in charge and see what happens? 
I was in a situation where I did something like this where I didn't like what was happening at one of the jobs I worked at. I went and talked to some executives. They didn't care. So you know what I said? I don't care. If they don't care, why why should I care? And so then I left. And and I thought about saying things publicly sometimes and nothing was as bad as this with 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 what Fires had, but it just, you know, I I'm glad what Fires did cuz it he got his butt kicked when he left the Astros anytime he went back and pitched against them. He knew the insides and the outsides of the cheating scandals going on. And that that's what was so weird about about how cocky Houston and maybe even Boston has been with this. How do you do this on a team when you have 25 players, you have players coming up and down from the minors, you know, you have 40, 50 players in the organization that probably play on your major league roster through the years, and then a bunch of them are going to be on different teams next year. It's not like you have the same group of guys for 10 years. Constantly changing teams. And then what happens? If you, you know, they're going to go somewhere else and tell them your secrets. Now some of the players have really started getting pissed off about the buzzer stuff. Like Alex Wood said, I'd rather face a player that was taking steroids than face a player that knew every pitch that was coming. Cody Bellinger said, for the sake of the game, I, for the sake of the game, I hope this isn't true. If true, there needs to be major consequences for the players. This completely ruins the integrity of the game. Yeah. Just, I mean... One of the biggest stories that that we'll ever see. This is one of the biggest stories in baseball history. If you haven't seen all, all about this, just like type in Jose Altuve on on you know Google or Twitter Twitter search and, and then see. And we'll keep revisiting this story because there's more and more to come once. The, the information with Boston comes out. And I mentioned the other day too, if you, as a Dodger fan, I don't want all of a sudden for the Dodgers to be the 2017 World Series champions, right? But I do think that if if all this stuff about the buzzers and the wires is true, Houston cannot be the 2017 World Series champ. And if something is similar with Boston, they can't be the 2018 champ. I just think you're better off having nobody be awarded the title. I don't want to retroactively say the Dodgers won because part of winning is the experience, right? I'm not going to ever feel like the Dodgers won. I definitely feel like they got a little bit cheated. And what's frustrating is we just don't know. I was having a really good conversation with uh, Mike Abadir on the Mike Abadir show that I co-host yesterday about how we don't know the levels of the cheating, which make it frustrating. But any cheating at all is is too much. And I'm not talking about a player on second base stealing a sign. We're talking about scouts, executives in the stands filming things and then relaying using video replay room, relaying that information to players on the field with devices, with text messages, with buzzers, with things like that, trash cans, whistling. You can hear really loud whistling in the Kershaw stuff too. I mean, in some of the in some of the uh in the one game where Kershaw got really lit up, you can you can look back and what's frustrating, you know, Kershaw, who has gotten a ton of crap because he's been inconsistent in the playoffs. He was really good in Game 1 against Houston in 2017. He was really good in Game 7 against Houston in 2017. You know both of those games were? At Dodger Stadium. You know the game that he was not good? The game on the road at Houston in Game 5. And that's the game that his whole legacy 
kind of gets crapped on because of that. Just more and more to this story. And we're, this was great from Chris Russo, the Mad Dog. Like, where are all the, Jose Altuve said he never did that, right? For a bunch of players in a team that's very confident, very cocky, very outspoken, very brash, they've sure been really damn quiet as all this is coming out. And I know they've probably been getting investigated and we're told not to talk, but I just don't know how we can look back on this team and think of them as a World Series champion. Yeah, the players are really getting pissed off. Like Mike Clevenger is coming out now. They shouldn't feel looking comfortable. They shouldn't feel comfortable looking any of us in the eye, let alone on the field. And any other major, the MLB player feels different. They can get it too. We're gonna find out a lot more now in the next few days about the Braves. But these this Astros cheating thing is like, there are some funny videos and gifs and memes out there. There's one. Uh, it says everything you need to know about the current state of Major League Baseball as told by Mean Girls. And it goes through the uh, the scene in, in Mean Girls where they're fighting and everyone's got a name of a different player on it. Check it out. I tweeted it out. If you follow me on Twitter, it's me, Gino B. It is pretty damn funny. Let's get into the NFL game previews. But before we do, we want to let you know about... Sarah Candles, one of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast. It is Sarah Candle Company, C-E-R-A, candles.com. Their goal to create a candle 100% natural, clean burning, and of the highest quality that everyone can enjoy. How do they do that? They use all natural soy wax. It's free from the toxins, from the carcinogens, from the pollutants that are found in all the, the leading brands. You know, paraffin wax has toxins and the all-natural soy wax actually can hold a scent better and burn up to 50% longer than that traditional paraffin wax candle. 100% lead-free, cotton wicks, completely natural scents, made in micro-batches, hand-poured to ensure the highest quality. Locally sourced, handcrafted in the USA. Hey, if you like to support small businesses, this is a small business that uh, I know personally, uh, the people who run this show, and they are reputable these candles are awesome and they have a great valentine's day deal right now where you can get a valentine's day box that will include a fresh roses candle and a date night candle make sure to give that a look they have 25 different scents available three different sizes fragrance oils infused with natural essential oils best ingredients quality packaging affordable pricing longer burning and none of those those pollutants that we talked about in paraffin wax they even give you instructions on how to Keep your candle clean, how to make sure it burns the best way and for the longest amount of time. Remember, when you're dealing with a, a flame, you want to make sure that you're taking good care of this candle and so nothing uh, nothing bad happens. These are created by people who love candles. They started out experimenting, trying to create the perfect candle, and they've blossomed into Sarah Candle Company. Through their research, they were able to discover the benefits of the all-natural soy wax. I can even get you a little a little bonus if you... Want to go to Sarah Candle Company? SarahCandles.com right now. Use the promo code GINO. Get you 10% off your entire purchase. Promo code GINO. Get you 10% off your entire purchase. That's SarahCandles.com. C E R A Candles.com. Conference Championship Games this weekend. We have first 
Uh, let's talk uh, AFC Titans Chiefs. This game opened as high as Chiefs nine to ten in some places, and it's down now to seven. You can probably still see it seven and a half some spots, but I'm on the Kansas City side, so I like the seven in here. Over under fifty three. Let's just go through some random stats for both of these teams. The total has gone over in nine of the last twelve games for the Titans. These teams actually met in Week Ten. Kansas City has won seven games in a row since then. But that Week Ten injury, that Week Ten game, was Mahomes' first game back from the injury, and the defense for Kansas City wasn't as good then as they have been recently. And in that game, KC settled for four field goals. Their red zone offense throughout most of the year was not good. Well. That was not really the case last year, uh, last week, when they scored seven consecutive touchdowns against the Texans, and they rattled off 51 points. The red zone defense for the Texans was dead last. You know who is just above them? Number 31? That's Tennessee. I just don't think Tennessee is going to be able to stop Kansas City from scoring. Even if Tennessee can run the ball with Henry, which he has just been unbelievable. He has been incredible. He has 1,159 yards rushing in road games this year. That's the most by any player in the last 70 years. In the playoffs, he has 64 carries and 377 yards. In week 10 against Kansas City, he had 23 carries for 188 yards. In his last three games, he's had 96 carries total. And in his last eight games, he's had 1,273 yards. That is the second most in NFL history over any eight-game span. The The issue with Kansas City, so normally if you're, you're playing against Kansas City, you're thinking, okay, let's take the ball away from them. Let's run the ball. Let's try to control the clock. The problem is, is they're such a quick strike offense that they can get beat in the time of possession battle and they can still beat you because they don't take a long time to score quick to score. They can score quickly with all of the different weapons that they have. Mike Vrabel, he's looking to beat two teams he played for, Patriots and the Chiefs. Little fun stat there. I mean, when we look back at that Week 10 game, Kansas City dominated the time of possession. They were 50% on third down and fourth downs, but those four field goals is really what killed them. And this offense seems like they're humming a little bit better. We mentioned seven straight touchdowns last week. A big factor in this game will be Chris Jones, the excellent pass rusher for Kansas City. He is questionable. He will put a ton of pressure on the Titans and on Tannehill if he's in the game. The Titans will try to become the third team ever to defeat each of the top three seeds in their conference in a single postseason. And you know the other two teams? They both won the Super Bowl, the 2005 Steelers and the 2010 Packers. When we look at Tennessee, do they look better because they're coming off a week where they beat Baltimore up last week and Baltimore was flat? Because when you really dive into that game, first drive, Andrews off his hands, interception, and Andrews is a little banged up. Ingram is a little banged up. So you have a drop pass interception on the first drive in just a, one of the weirdest box score games you'll ever see. Because the Titans scored all of their points off of turnovers or turnovers on downs. So they got a couple turnovers, and then they stopped Baltimore on four fourth downs. That's basically four additional turnovers. Since Week 7, Tannehill took over for the Titans. They've scored a touchdown on 34.6% of their drives, which is second in the league. They've got 31 red zone touchdowns and one red zone field goal. You know what the odds of that are? Something like that keeping up? Absolutely insane. 
31 touchdowns and one field goal in their 32 trips to the red zone since week seven. Titans are 8-0 and when Henry rushes for 100-plus yards this year. They have the number 8th ranked offensive line, so a top 10 offensive line to help establish that run. And Kansas City's defense is bottom five against the rush in yards per carry and in yards per game. So that's where, you know, it, it's nothing cute. It's nothing, you, you don't have to get um, tricky. The Titans are just going to probably try to run the ball right down Kansas City's throat. It's going to be strength against weakness. Then on the other side of the ball, it's going to be strength against weakness because Kansas City's passing game is a strength, and I don't care who you are, you're not going to really stop them. You could maybe slow them down a little bit. But you look at Travis Kelsey, 79.9 receiving yards per game in the playoffs. That is the most in the Super Bowl era for a tight end who has played five playoff games. How about Mahomes? 113.2 passer rating in three playoff games. That's the highest of any player with at least 100 passing attempts since 1950. And in week 10, he was 36 for 50, 446 yards and three touchdowns. Tennessee gave over gave up over 500 yards of offense last week to the Ravens, but that game looks like they crushed them because they just kept stopping them on fourth down. And Tennessee was top 10 in third down and fourth down conversion against. So that, that wasn't crazy for them to, to be able to get some stops, but as far as their red zone, they're awful in the red zone. As you mentioned, in the regular season, they were the second worst team um, against against offenses in the red zone as far as giving up touchdowns. So, will Andy Reid win his first Super Bowl? He has 220 wins, including the playoffs. That is the most by any head coach not to win a Super Bowl or NFL championship. Or NFL championship. It's one game away from getting back to the Super Bowl. The Titans need to run the ball. They need to look for takeaways. They're, they were top 10 in interceptions. And, and maybe they take the, the handcuffs off Tannehill a little bit. He has had less than 100 yards passing in both of his playoff games. But he, it's not like he's been turning the ball over and he's been just poor a poor passer. They've just been running the ball with Henry. They've been dominating the run. Why go away from it, especially in games when you're up and you can control the clock and you can control the game? Because in season, Tannehill had the best passer rating in the league. He completed over 70% of his passes. He was first in yards per attempt and he was first in yards per completion. The Chiefs were 11th in sacks, and the big factor for them with Chris Jones, who missed the first game against the Titans in Week 10. And so if you have Clark and Jones up front, Kansas City, their secondary is actually pretty good. They were 8th in yards per game passing defense, and they were 5th in passing defensive rating. Look around for 7. Let's go Kansas City minus the 7 in here. I think the Chiefs win this game. Uh, I picked the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl before the season. I'm going to stick with them now. I, I I got really nervous middle of the year when Mahomes got hurt, and he really wasn't looking like Mahomes even at the beginning of the year. But he looks good now. This team defense is much much better. That fluky. I'm glad that they got kind of got that fluky game at, uh, start for the game out of the way last week because if they were down 24 nothing to this Titans team I don't know if they'd be able to come back but I don't expect them to have that that bad of a start where they're muffing punts and just dropping passes left and right where the Chiefs were their own worst enemies early on and it was not Mahomes at all he was excellent Let's go the Chiefs minus 
the seven. Packers, 49ers. Or under is 45. This game opened at six some places, seven others, now up to seven and a half. This is the rematch from November the 24th when San Francisco won 37 to 8. And to be honest, it really wasn't even that close. They kicked the crap out of Green Bay. Now, Green Bay has won six in a row since that loss, but they haven't exactly faced the murderer's row, right? The Giants, Washington, the Bears, the Vikings, Detroit, and Seattle. So there are a couple common opponents in there. Seattle and the Vikings, who San Francisco has played. Green Bay's 4-2 against the spread in their last six, but they are 3-12-1 straight up in their last 16 games as a dog. The total has gone under in four of the last five for Green Bay. The one that it didn't was last week because I played the over, so I know. Uh, I played the under, so I know that for sure it went over. San Francisco is 5-2 and two against the spread in their last seven. This year, they're 1-2-1 and one against the spread when they're favored by seven or more. The Packers held on to beat Seattle 28-23 after blowing a 21-3 lead. I guess they didn't really blow it because they were leading throughout, but they still covered. Basically, because Seattle missed the two-point conversion, which would have been the difference between covering and not, really wouldn't have mattered as far as the win was concerned. And this is the same Seattle team that San Francisco lost to and should have lost to both times. Remember, Seattle just couldn't get into the end zone on the one-yard line in in that huge game that gave San Francisco the number one seed. So let's go back to the Week 12 meeting. What can we take from that? Green Bay was one of 15 on third down. They got sacked five times and hit ten times. And they turned the ball over on their opening drive. That was the first Green Bay opening drive turnover since 2017 season finale when Brett Hundley did it. Devontae Adams only had 43 yards. He lined up against Richard Sherman on 16 of 35 routes, and in those routes, he had just one reception for seven yards, so Sherman shut him down. And when Green Bay fumbled on that first drive, it set up San Francisco on the two-yard line, and they get right in. They only had 81 yards passing in a game where they were down throughout Green Bay. Normally, you see like a garbage time where teams just kind of rack up the yards. This was not the case. Yards per play in this game, Green Bay 2.8, San Francisco 7.5. San Francisco even had nine penalties for 78 yards. Rodgers was awful. He was 20 for 33. He had 104 yards and 1.7 yards per pass. We mentioned the five sacks and the 10 hits. And it hurt because Brian Bulaga left in the first quarter, which hurt their offensive line with a knee injury. He's going to be back this week, it looks like. There was one point in the game where San Francisco might have had a small, or where Green Bay might have had a small chance. It was 10 to nothing with 11.06 left in the second quarter. San Francisco was up. Green Bay got stopped on a fourth and one at the San Francisco 28, and that really was the game. Because even if Green Bay kicks a field goal, it's still a one-score game. If they score a touchdown, they're only down three. Instead, they were just chasing, and I don't think they were ever going to win, but there are big turning point moments in games like that where it feels like it kind of sucks the whole life out of your team, and that was that moment in that particular game. Green Bay is 5-1 and one against the spread in their last six playoff games. They are 5-1 and one against the spread in the last six overall, 4-1 and one against the spread last five playoff road games. Oh, that 5-1 and one against the spread is the last six playoff games as a dog. George Kittle popped up on the injury port. Uh, with an ankle. He missed a couple games earlier this year, but he's going to play. He's not on the final injury report. And the big uh, questionable is Brian Bulaga, offensive lineman for Green Bay. 
This is the first time Green Bay has been a road underdog of seven or more points since October of 2018. And this Green Bay team has been a team that they've gotten a little lucky throughout the year because lucky is probably the wrong way, fortunate. Things have gone just gone very well for them in most of their games. They get up early. Um, they just kind of run the ball. They don't really ever look sexy. They never look really flashy. They never beat up on anyone. But they find ways to win games. They are kind of a lot like the team they beat last week in Seattle. Green Bay was 9 for 14 on third down and 3 for 3 in the red zone with no turnovers. So compare that, the 9 for 14, to the 1 for 15 they were against San Francisco when they played. Now, of course... San Francisco is much better defensively, right? Uh, San Francisco, they held the Vikings to 2 for 12 from third down last week. They are number 2 defensively against third down conversions. And they are number 1, the 49ers. They rank 1 in passing yards allowed per game. Going to have to find ways to get Aaron Jones the ball, who's averaging 100 yards rushing per game over his last 5 with 7 touchdowns. But remember, the San Francisco team just shut down Dalvin Cook. San Francisco gave up 41 yards to Diggs. And in the other 32 plays, they gave up 40 yards. (laughs) Jimmy G only had 11 passes completed. And only a season low of 16 yards for Kittle receiving. And they still kicked the crap out of the Vikings. D Ford, back from injury, had a sack, a couple QB hits, and a tackle for loss. Rodgers has the fourth lowest completion percentage win under pressure. I gotta be honest, when you look at the way these two teams match up, it doesn't really bode well on paper for the Packers. It really doesn't. Like San Francisco wants to run the ball. Green Bay is not good against the run. Uh, San, uh, the Green Bay wants to probably cut, try to you know balance, but a little bit of a run, a little bit of a pass, and the 49ers can shut down your pass, and if you try to run up the gut, they're going to shut you down. But I feel like we saw a, different, a little bit of different Aaron Rodgers last week making those huge big plays on third downs. That's what's key for him. Little random fact that has absolutely nothing, no relevance to the game, really. First conference championship in which neither QB recorded a start in the first two years of playing. Both of these were, were backups for the first couple of years Garoppolo behind Brady and Rodgers behind Favre. How about this? Aaron Rodgers' last five playoff losses all came to a team he already lost to that year, which would be the 49ers this year. San Francisco second in the league in rushing yards per game, and they allowed the fewest yards per game, yards per attempt, yards per catch, and 20-plus yards plays. Can Green Bay find a number two wide receiver this week? Can they find someone to compliment Adams, Aaron Jones out of the backfield? Because that's a strong wide receiver one. That's a strong running back who can run the ball well and who can you know catch the ball out of the backfield. But... Can they get another pass catcher to make a play or two? They got a, a big play from Jimmy Graham last week. That big third down didn't look like it was a first down when they when they had when they needed a first down basically to win the game. Looked like they were a little bit short, but Jimmy Graham did make the catch. Can somebody else step up? Adams had six games this year with 100 plus receiving yards. Green Bay was five and one in those games. But Aaron Jones, San Francisco's excellent against running backs catching passes and up the middle. They got to get a little creative with Aaron Jones. Got to try to swing him out wide. The Green Bay rush defense, 26th in the league. Can they stop that loaded San Francisco backfield? And the Green Bay pass rush 
with the 49er, uh, the pass rush, Preston Smith, Zadarius Smith, that's where Green Bay can win this game. Defensively, can their defensive front put enough pressure on Jimmy G to make to force him to to turn the ball over, to throw a pick, to to get a strip sack, to just put a lot of pressure on Jimmy G? I think that's the best opportunity for the Packers. And then you know you hope your 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 defensive front plays well, and then you just hope you get the same Rodgers from last week, a Rodgers who's been you know who's been here many times. The real key to to betting this game. Is the number because it's right around that key number seven seven and a half at seven and a half? I think you have to take the Packers. I still think the 49ers probably win this game, but I, when you're getting more than the one score at the seven and a half, I take the forty. I would take the Packers. So if you're like a, I'm not a teaser person, but if you if you like the 49ers, I would maybe recommend playing them in a teaser or or you know buying it down to seven, but. That that because that extra half is key. I, I mean, this could be a game where the 49ers are beating up on the Packers throughout, and then you get a late garbage time touchdown, and and you know the 49ers win by six or seven here. But I, I just I have a feeling Green Bay is going to play a lot better than they did. I think if these two teams played ten times, San Francisco would probably beat them eight. But I got a feeling we might get one of those two games where you're just going to get a really good effort from Green Bay. So I'll take uh, the two games this weekend. Let's take Green Bay plus the 7.5 against the 49ers. And then we'll take Kansas City minus the 7. And the main reason in those games is because of the numbers, right? At 7.5, Kansas City would scare me a little bit more. It's two possessions. The way that game has moved, too, all the way down, kind of opened up a little higher and has moved all the way down. A lot of people are high on Tennessee. This is a game where... It doesn't feel like anybody's picking the Packers. It doesn't feel like anybody's talking about the Packers. That's what's kind of scary. When everybody is on the other side with the 49ers. And and rightly so. Like, right, you look at all the metrics, it doesn't look like a good matchup on paper for Green Bay. I think, but I think that extra half is just of a point is why we have to lean with the with the Packers with the two scores. So we'll go Green Bay plus seven and a half. We'll go Kansas City minus seven. Let's get you over to Fairgrounds. We're going to talk about the LeCompte card on January the 18th. And let's go through some thoughts on some of the early uh, races. First play of the day is going to be in race number two. We're going to go to the number five, Pete's Play Call. Ooh, sorry. Sorry, Seahawks fans, huh? Pete Pete's Play Call wasn't very good in the, the Super Bowl a few years back. He's had some bad play calls also. I just feel like he sits the trip, right? Let's go back and look at his last, you know, Four races. Go back to July the 17th at Saratoga. He beat two next out winners, fully vested, won two of the next three, including a stakes at Aqueduct. Pagliacci won an allowance next out, a starter allowance 50 next out on September the 20th. Fact finding was the horse who Pete's play call was defeated by. That was a next out winner who won an optional $150,000 claimer at, at Keeneland on November the 28th. At Churchill Downs, after a slow start, Pete's play call was 7th of 8th. He was inside at the rail. He was in a tight spot. He got shuffled back. He lost momentum. He lost a few lengths, and he angled off the rail. He made up some ground late, but the early trouble cost him. And then last out, a winner in a stakes race right here at Fairgrounds over a sloppy racetrack. And keep in mind, the weather, folks. It is likely going to be raining, so these horses who have performed well over a sloppy racetrack, you upgrade them a little bit, really keep an eye on the grass races, if the races are on or off the turf, what's the turf conditions there. So on his last start, Pete, Petey broke well, sat close up, 
third. He's, he's taken back out of a spot in between horses. He angles to the outside with a dead aim. He was always traveling well. And the horse he beat named Wilbo, that's a 12-time t- a winner. That's a multiple stakes winner, and that's a multiple graded stakes placed runner. This is just a small field, but the way this race shapes up, it should f- be perfect for Pete's play call, right? You have Hog Creek Hustle from the rail, Stone Cold Closer, and he's from the rail. So it concerns me that you have a deep closer who's going to have to gonna drop back and, and come around. You have Bobby's Wicked One, who's the one to beat, and very, very fast. Then you have Mile Pie right next to him, who's really, really fast. So I think those two, they probably end up you know, softening each other up a little bit. The other two horses in the race, Hog Creek Hustle and then Do Share, they're deep closers. That really leaves Pete's play call as a horse who should sit a perfect trip. I mean, he should be third behind two horses battling. Now, we, we need Malpai to push Bobby's Wicked One, and if one of these two horses gets out front, if one of these two horses breaks poorly and the other one gets clear, then it's going to be real tough. But if we can get anything over... Four to one. Like I'm thinking, Pete's play call looks like the seven to two shot. That's my value line in here. The number five, Pete's play call in race number two at Fairgrounds. Let's go to race number three. Keep in mind, grass race here, mile on the turf course. So look at the weather. Let's talk about the number two, Happy Thought. You're a Peter Pan fan. You're a fan of the movie Hook, which I love. You know, Robin Williams in there. Happy Thought debuted going five and a half furlongs on the turf. So a turf sprint. For a barn who is 0 for their last 34 with first-time starters. The Tom Proctor barn just does not crank horses to get ready first time out. So when I see a horse run well first time out, to me, that signals this horse is a little bit more uh, precocious. They're they're farther along the line than most from this barn, and they should be ready to rock next time out. And that's next time out is today or for Happy Thought. So Happy Thought drew the rail in his debut, in her debut. She was outrun after a... And a fine start, and she was you know, 10 plus lengths off of it. She moves to the inside, then in between horses, then angles outside mid stretch and starts to roll late with a big gallop out. Now you're going to go second start off the bench, or second start period, second time out. You're going to get more distance, and you know, a barn that is better with second time starters. The number two, Happy Thought. We'll make a win wager on Happy Thought if we can get five to one. In race number three, let's go to race number four. And we're going to go to the number four in here. That is Strike Appeal. Strike Appeal debuted at Ellis Park in a sprint, was a good second. Then in career start number two, stretches out at Churchill Downs. He hooks a tough race. He hooks a horse named Maxfield that day. He was, you know, in sixth, seventh, about five lengths off from the outside. And... Three deep, moved in between horses. He was kind of at the back of the middle of the back of the mid pack. And he makes a five wide bid in between. He's a little bit flat late, but he was behind grade one winner Maxfield. And there were a couple next out winners that day. Last time out, he was asked for speed. He got the lead from the inside. And it was more of a strategy, I think, that day because of the draw, because of the field. You think you're better than this group? Let's just go get aggressive and put this horse out on the front end, right? So. He's just forwardly placed, and that race was in the slop, so we know he has no issue with the slop. He ends up in the two-path, in in between horses. He responded really well when asked in the early stretch, and he kicked clear. I think there's a little more under the the hood here with strike appeal, the number four. Let's make a win wager on that number four strike appeal at 7-2. 
Let's get to race number five. Of all the horses, this one is just kind of a maybe throw him in your uh, in some of your exotics if he floats up in price. Maybe uh, maybe we'll play him. And that's the number six sharp prospect who. He was sitting a really perfect trip in second in his last start. No excuses. That was in a race that was taken off the grass. They've tried to get this guy on the grass a couple times, and we'll see if he can get him on the grass again because it might be raining. Two of his five siblings won on the grass, and they, if you look at early on in his career, he actually faced some pretty nice horses. I want him at five to one, and make sure to, to flop him into some of your exotics. That is the number six sharp prospect. Let's go to race number seven. Now, that'll be our next play in the seventh race. Sorry, you Vikings fans, but we are going to go to Skull Chant. Philly versus the boys. But early on in the year, it doesn't bother me. A tough first quarter for Skull Chant in her last start. She was checked into the turn. She was 10 off. She moved in between. She angled to the outside in the stretch. It was a really nice rally with some trouble. I think there is a major, major step forward coming today for Skull Chant, who lost the rider in, in her debut. So she's really making her she's making her third start, but it's really only the second start where she's able to kind of uh, we're able to kind of gauge how much talent this Philly has. So Skull Chant, I, it gives me a little bit of confidence, the fact that Michael Stidham decides to put her in this spot. And I, I don't think the distance is an issue because they're going to be going a mile and an eighth in here. And number two, Skull Chant will make a win wager if we can get anything around nine to two. And then we'll skip over to race number 10. Didn't really love anything in race eight, race number nine. Let's go to race number 10. And let's go to the number four. Gun it. This guy's got to be the speed in here, right? He was always talented, but now he's improved as a four-year-old. He's going to be making his third start off the bench. This is a horse who actually ran in the Risen Star here last year. And look at that Risen Star race. War of Will was the winner. War of Will, your Preakness winner. Country House, who won the Derby, was also in that race. Hog Creek Hustle's a grade one winner. Mr. Money was in there. He won four straight graded stakes races. And Owendale was in there who was second in the Preakness, and that's a multiple graded stakes winner. He took some nice horses early on last year. Let's put a line through, you know, the Risen Star and then the the Keeneland optional claimer in April. He tailed off a little bit. He comes back from uh, from off the bench on November the 20th. He runs really well. He wins by five. And then last time out, he chased Warrior's Charge, who was the horse who set the pace in the Preakness. I think he's set up for a really nice race. Gun it. Probably going to be doing just that early on, trying to take this field gate to wire. We'll play the number four, gun it. Let's move to race number 12. This is the silver bullet day. Let's go through horse by horse this field. The one, tempers rising from the inside. November the 22nd, there were a couple next out winners in that race. The fourth place finisher won a maiden special weight next out at Laurel and uh, one of the Last finishers won a maiden special weight next out at Turfway Park. Tempers Rising broke well, but kind of gradually dropped back towards the rear with six, seven lengths off of it, moved in between horses, then angled around five wide with a big, big move. Had to work late, but ended up getting by, ended up getting the win, and she's never really run a bad race. She had a lot of trouble when she was behind She Can't Sing two starts back. You'd see she was favored three consecutive starts. In early on in her career, she hooked a horse named Wasabi Girl, who was a next out winner in the stakes placed. She hooked a horse named Beautiful Trauma, who won by 16 lengths just the other day. 
in on the September race at Churchill Downs. There were three next out winners that day. One of them, Princessina Julia, who has now won three in a row, including the stakes race at Remington. Also, Mo2 was second in the grade two golden rod. So Timbers Rising, what makes this what makes me I just don't know what to do with her in this spot. I, I don't really have any knocks on her. And I I would not be shocked from the rail. I think I really I have her like fourth in here. Seven two six one is the way I have this race. So I wouldn't talk you off using her in some of the exotics, especially because she should offer you some nice value. The number two is the wild card that I like past the plate. She has been good in her three starts, and her two starts going long on the grass have been excellent. Visually, really impressive. She was dead last time, last out. She was 12-plus off the lead. She angled outside, and um, and she was able to really just fly home. She was just playing with them too late. I mean, geared down, just messing around. The dam won five times on the dirt, and the sire, Temple City, was a grade three winner on the synthetic. I don't think the the track should be an issue for this filly who's been training over this fairgrounds racetrack. I think she's worth including in some of your exotics. I have her pick second in here. Ursula, out of the sea, wish I could be part of this world. Little Mermaid. Ursula was pressing three deep, just off the pace, moved to second to challenge, but was just no match for a really nice Taraz last time out. I think it's it's a tough spot for Ursula because she's going to have to stretch out from six to a mile, and it looks like there's other speed in here, right? Like right to her outside, his glory pace in the slop last time out. You could put a line through that, but pace going long two starts back when taking a field gate to wire and beating Mo two. You can excuse the the sloppy race. Can she sit though? Is the major question I have with his glory. Is this a one dimensional speed type? Because she's going to have to deal with other speed, like Ursula right to her inside. She's going to have to deal with Maga Sweet to her outside in finite. Maga Sweet is stretching out, but she has to prove it on the dirt. And the difference between this filly and past the plate is we've actually seen Maga Sweet on the dirt a couple times and she didn't run well, but she sure worked nicely at fairgrounds most recently. Her half-brother, Guess Sweet, was a five-time winner on the dirt, including winning the LeCompte over this racetrack at fairgrounds. But she has to answer the dirt question, the distance question, and she has to do that when facing tougher. Let's go to Finite, who is your favorite in here. She has won three in a row. She is the only graded stakes winner in the field. She broke well from the rail most recently, and she was able to secure a nice spot. She was third. She was tucked inside. She was a couple lengths off. She took back. She angled off the rail, and she was three deep. Loomed up to the lead without really being asked. And she had the lead at the top of the lane. Shaken up a little bit. Determined stretch drive to hold off Motu. It was a good effort between a couple really nice animals. To me, I think the horse with the most upside in this field and the horse who might be the most talented is Portrait. And that's where I'm going to land with my top selection in here. She is fresh. She's training well. Florence Giroux jumps on. Let's go through Portrait's three starts. In her debut, she was one of two next out winners. She took back immediately from the outside. She was sixth. She was seventh. Five plus lengths off. She moved to the inside. She stayed inside. She was up to fourth at the top of the lane. She was looking to split horses. She got an opening, but things got tight late. 
And, you know, she was probably second best that day when she finished third. August 25th at Ellis Park, she beat a next out winner named Evil Lynn, who was 8-5 to five that day. Evil Lynn won a maiden $150,000 race at Churchill Downs next out. And Portrait was asked for speed from the outside. She pressed from second. She was always traveling well. I mean, she just always looked like a winner. She was full of runs. She put away that 8-5 to five second choice very easily and drew off. And then in her third career start, she just had a little bit of trouble early on. She ran up onto heels of arrival. She wanted to go when she was third, fourth. She was sitting behind horses. She was tucked inside. She was trying to get off the rail, but she couldn't. She tried to move in between horses. She got stopped. And then she was able to angle three deep, but it, she was just a little bit flat. It was it, her, her best run had already been dulled a bit. And now she's fresh. I like her. Portrait's going to be my top selection in here. I'm going to go 7-2-6, but let's talk about She Can't Sing a little bit. I wouldn't talk you off a horse who can pass. I think you can excuse the slop. And this is a horse who has been proven going long on the dirt. Kind of a wild card, though. So for me, it's it's seven two six one in the Silver Bullet Day. And let's go to the LeCompte. Kentucky Derby points on the line in a big, big field. Let's begin with the number one, Finnick the Fierce. The one-eyed gelding. Yes, this horse has one eye. He most recently was a pretty good second in the Kentucky Jockey Club. He was squeezed out of a spot at the start. He was 7th of 8th early on, but he was just 5 off. He was always wide. He was uh, 2, then 3, then 5 wide at the top of the lane. He made a nice rally to finish second best, and that was just his first route. This is a horse who's proven in the slop. Finnick the Fierce from the inside. I like others a little bit more, but got some upside here. Mr. Monomoy is the half-brother to Monomoy Girl, 9 for 11, $2.9 million. And Mr. Monomoy pressed in second last time out. He was in the two-path. He was no more than a length off. He moved to the lead, and he just couldn't hold off a late rally from Lynn's map. But I... I like the way he was handled. That was his first start going long. Now it's going to be second time going long. I think he's got a little more there. So as far as using in the exotics, I'm not against Mr. Monomoy. I think he's he's one of the ones in here. Perfect Star just looks like a little bit of a long shot. He showed some speed on the grass, but he really hasn't passed horses, and he hasn't shown anything on the dirt. And there's a lot of other speed in here, so I think Perfect Star really just seems like he's, he's going to be a bit overmatched. I loved Scabbard in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. And he broke really well. But then he got bumped around and he was in tight going into the first turn. But then he settled really nicely. He was in fifth and he was only three lengths off. He was in the clear. It just seemed like as soon as the real running started, he was all in. He started scrubbing. He lost ground. I was really disappointed. Because he had a brutal trip on September the 14th. And he showed, showed some athleticism and some ability. He finished second in there with a ton of trouble. I have mixed feelings on him because it's really tough to hold that racetrack at Santa Anita against anyone. That Breeders' Cup track, remember, it was so deep. How many horses just didn't show up, didn't run well on it? So I don't I don't have Scabbard on top, but I don't have him as a toss. Like, if he was like 9-5 to five in here in this race, I would play against him. But if he is like 5-2, to 3-1 to one around there, then... He's, he's probably going to be in your exotics. If you're just looking at this field... He might be the most talented, and he's probably done the most. But 
it just is so hard for me with the with the taste of that Breeders' Cup race still in my mouth. I just love them. Accession was third behind Lynn's map in Mr. Monomoy in his last start. He got shuffled from the inside. He was fifth. He was tucked in. He was moving in between horses, but he had nowhere to go. By the time he had an opening, he was a little bit flat, but he still tried hard all the way to get up for third. And he's faced some nice horses. I mean, Basin, grade one winner, three technique. Next out winner, Irish Mia is a stakes winner. Grade one winner, Maxfield. Three next out winners from his debut race. He was one of three next out winners on October the 27th. Just feels like an under type horse to me. New Eagle is kind of another pace player. He set the pace. He will be forwardly placed, but how good is he? Can he sit off? If he's not on the lead, can he win this race? And is he even the quickest? To me, there are more questions than answers with New Eagle. Can't really knock Halo again, who is two for two, worked out a nice spot from third, was tucked inside, was always close, got shuffled a little bit, but came on again when ducking down to the rail and winning up at Woodbine, and that was going a mile and an eighth. I wouldn't, I wouldn't completely talk you off this one. I like others a bit more. Jack the umpire is, is going to be flashing some speed, showed big speed from the inside at Delta last time out in Cruz. He's 3 of 4 in a stakes winner. But the two horses I like the most are going to be coming up right next to each other, the 9 and the 10, Silver State. Let's start with him. Debut wins very easily. Dead Heat debut, which is bizarre, by 9 lengths. And then on the November 30th race, he had a brutal start. He got crushed, completely pinballed on both sides, but he recovered really quickly and really well. He was up to a close-up fifth at the rail. He was three lengths off, but then he was right up onto the heels of the leader. To me, it's just a little green, right? Start Trouble at the start, and then you kind of move a little bit too early, so you probably lose a little bit of your oomph. He got shuffled back. He got stuck in behind horses, but he got a nice opening. He moved to the lead. He actually took the lead in middle in the middle of the stretch, but he hung a little bit late behind Necker Island. Second time going long. Should have a little more bottom, putting these two starts together. I think Silver State is one of the major, major players in here. I have him pick second. The only reason why I have him pick second is because I'll lean to Enforceable, who will be a little bit better of a price. I've been following Enforceable for quite some time. And he was always a horse who I thought would be pretty good with distance. And you know, he broke his maiden going a mile and an eighth. And he's another one who's faced some nice horses. You look at Rowdy Yates, Decorated Invader, Maxfield, who he's hooked. He's actually a grade one place, too. He was third in that Breeders' Futurity. He's not a horse that has a really big turn of foot. He's more of a grinder. And when I look in a big field like this and I see horses who are stretching out, I see a, a lot of probable speeds. I think this should be a a race that sets up very, very nicely for uh, Enforceable, who was fourth in the Kentucky Jockey Club last time out. He took back from the rail. He was last early. He was inside. He was eighth. He was seven off, and he was traveling well, but he was just behind a ton of horses. He had to wait for room, and the room he was waiting for never came. So he angles to the outside. He has to alter his course a little bit, and he starts to come on late. It was pretty sneaky there. We're going to make Enforceable our top selection in this one. Right next to Enforceable is some more speed. It looks like Bango will be a part of the pace here, and he's going to have to prove it going long. We also have uh, Sha Sha Shake Him Up through the rail. Didn't have the best start, 
last time out, was back to third, was about four lengths off, and then just couldn't re-rally. So my issue with, with this one is, is he a need the lead type? You can make excuses for that last start because he drew the rail sprinting and he had to deal with the slop. But to me, he just seems like some pace stretching out in here in a race where there is already going to be a lot of pace. And we have Sycamore Run, who flew to the front, opened up a length and never looked back. And now we'll have to stretch out from the six furlongs to a mile and a sixteenth in a massive field. I mean, no knocks on what Sycamore Run did, but this might be a lot to ask in career start number two. And then Lynn's Map, who may scratch because of the outside draw. Winner last time out, defeated Mr. Monomoy in accession, was fourth early, was in the two path, was a couple lengths off, was traveling well, was up three deep at the top of the lane. He was two behind Mr. Monomoy. He angled to the outside of that rival and he wears him down late to get up for the W. That is Lynn's map. For me, 10, 9, 4, 2. Those are the uh, the plays in the LeCompte, 10, 9, 4, 2. Okay, before we close things out, we're going to go through a few of your plays. I asked you for your best plays of the weekend. I just want to give a shout out to those of you who posted. Remember, we're doing NBA Jam rules. So if you give me a winner on one show, then give me a winner on the next show, you're heating up. And then on your third show, you're on fire. We'll bring you on for a segment, guest host segment with us. You can give out a couple plays and... uh, We'll see how sharp you are. So Nick, Mr. Guru Nick says uh, Kansas City minus 7.5 and and Green Bay, San Francisco under 46. Nick, if you like Kansas City, look around for 7s because it's out there. But yeah, Kansas City for Nick. Uh, Carl Starnes says the Titans plus 7 or whatever's the line now. So yeah, if you're you're looking, Carl, try to find your 7.5 if you can. Always search around for your best line like Buckeye Bob. He's going to play Tennessee plus 7.5. And San Francisco, minus the 7.5. Thanks to those of you out there who sent out a tweet. How about those of you who posted over on Facebook? Dante Mercadente, he said, uh, Sixers minus 3.5 on Friday. And to Milo sleeping through the night tonight, book it. Nice. Uh, Jeff Osman likes the T-Wolves Friday night, plus 7.5. And and the Blazers, plus 7. Uh, Michael Vasiluzo likes Tennessee and San Fran, both money line with the and with the points this weekend. Uh, Joe Joey Q says Saturday going with the alma mater Drexel over William and Mary. Michael Gagliano likes uh, St. Louis plus seven over Dayton tonight. Matt Zywatak loves St. Louis tonight. Pete Martini says uh, Chiefs Packers money line play Santa Anita Saturday. He's going to play a late pick four one four eight. With one five six, with four five ten eleven, with one two, and he might play a late pick five as well and go one three six in race number five, and that would be a uh, hundred eight bucks on his ticket. And Gary Williams said, 49ers are going to pound the Packers. They will cover the seven and a half easily." Stan says, "I agree. I doubt it'll be as bad as last time, but I expect them to win comfortably." Yeah, I I think they're going to win, but I I just don't think it's the the half of a point is the killer. Like. As a better, I couldn't. I couldn't bet that. There's just too too much of an opportunity for a garbage time score. Dave Foster likes Oklahoma City tonight, minus one and a half Friday night. Uh, Mark Schul, uh, Mike Schulter likes Casey Tennessee under fifty one on Sunday. Good luck, Mike. 
And then Stan Ware with the the Miners, minus 7.5. That's your team, Stan. Stan's been on him all year. He's been heavy on him. But to me, the, the line's just too high. It should be like 5. I don't think it's going to be an absolute blowout. And it's just, to me, there are too many people that are all in on the 49ers. That's what scares me when the public is so heavy on a team like that. Sometimes you just got to go the other way or just kind of watch. So for me, if like if it was 6, I wouldn't play Green Bay. If it was 7, I wouldn't play Green Bay. But at 7.5, I'm playing Green Bay. Nice to hear from all of you out there. Thanks for listening to another episode of That's What She Said. Don't forget... Go subscribe, rate, review, and share the uh, the show around with all of your friends. We'll be back next week with a couple new episodes of That's What G Said. One of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast is Cindy Carava, full-service realtor. And I am here over in Glendora at Coldwell Banker with Cindy Carava. Cindy, how was 2019 for you? Tell us uh, a little bit about what uh, what kind of stuff you were working on. Hi, Gino. Thanks for having me. Uh, 2019 was just really great. Uh, I had a great year uh, selling homes all the way from Altadena, Arcadia, Monrovia, out to Upland and Ontario just recently. Um, The market has has been uh, really good. Um, We're looking forward to 2020 with an increase in home prices about 5.8% this year, opposed to last year where it was a little softer. We saw uh, more like homes averaging about 3.5% in increase in value. Um, It's also looking great for buyers. Uh, The interest rates right now are going to be staying under 4%. So if you've been on the fence about thinking about buying a home, home, now is the time to do so with interest rates still staying low. And you offer more services than just the buying, selling, and leasing homes. Tell us about some of the other services that you offer and what a full service realtor really is. So you're right, Gino, besides me being uh, a full service realtor of uh, finding properties for my clients to buy or selling their homes or finding rentals for them, um, I also have a plethora of resources like uh, handyman, contractors, electricians, plumbers. Uh, I even, if like I said, if you're thinking about getting a home loan, I actually work with two great lenders that I can recommend to anybody. And you're all over the internet, social media, websites. Let us know some of the places where we can find you. I know I've seen some reviews on Yelp and on Zillow. Everyone always has positive things to say. Everybody hears me raving about you all the time. But where can uh, everyone else find out information about you or contact? Thank you, Gino. Yeah, I am on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, And uh, you can contact me on my website, which is www.cindycarava.com, or my email, which is cindyc.realtor at gmail.com, or feel free to call or text me on my cell phone, which is 626-394-6400. Cindy is awesome. She's one of the kindest and most genuine people I've ever met. I promise you, you will enjoy every minute you interact with her. So thank you very much, Cindy. Uh, Appreciate all of your support from That's What She Said podcast. Thank you, Gino. Have a great day, everyone.